0: chapter 11 we're going to look at the first 16 verses I want to encourage you to turn there and stand if you will as we read God's holy and inspired word Hebrews 11:1 through 16 Now faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen For by it the elders obtained a good testimony By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And through it, though he being dead, still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed and bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars in the sky of multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were assured of them, embraced them, Confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. And therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its presence in our life, so accessible to us. So many of us have multiple Bibles. We have other resources. We have the whole story as you have revealed yourself over the centuries and millennia to your people. And so we pray that we would be attentive and not take for granted the blessings that we have to come together to worship, to come together to hear your word, To come together to learn by your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we looked at the end of chapter 10 and the first three verses of chapter 11 and learned that faith is the natural response that God has built into men and women such that they are not, when they are not captive to sin, They clearly see, understand, and acknowledge that God is the ruler of all things. And this spiritual sight, this this, uh, perspective, this ability, if you will, that God builds into his people is so strong and convincing that it is, as verse 1 says, evidence or proof of things that aren't seen. And tying that together with the end of chapter 10, we realize that one of the things not seen is our inheritance in heaven that Christ bought for us through his own blood. The Hebrews, they could reason just like we can that if God sovereignly holds all things together, if he created such a beautifully ordered and complex universe, then surely it must be true as the Bible says that no eye can see nor mind conceive what, what God has prepared for those who love him. And so that better possession that they looked forward to, that it's in the end of chapter 10, it was that. It was the eternity that God was preparing for them. And that was in the face of the world's claims that you don't need God, that the, the mind, especially the educated human mind, is capable of solving all of mankind's problems capable of figuring out all the mysteries of the universe. But Hebrews 11 and Romans 1 that we looked at last week counter that thinking. Why? Because they describe men and women as deliberately suppressing the truth that they can clearly see. And even though reason is a beautiful instrument designed by God and, and excellently suited for the universe, man's reason as it exists now is it's deprived of that essential element of faith. And when it's missing, it's being actively suppressed by our sinful nature. That's what Romans 1 said. So, men and women, what are they doing? They're looking out at the universe, they clearly understand God's invisible attributes, the fact that he exists, the fact that he made and ordered all that is, and they reject what they clearly see because of the action of sin, and they instead lie to themselves by worshiping the creation rather than the creator. So that's what Romans 1 says. And it's what Hebrews 11 affirms. If we ever expect to solve our problems, like the world says, you know, the mind can do that. Yes, it can once the activity of sin is removed and broken. Yes, it can once God moves in the human heart and frees us to act and live in faith. So the author's well aware that those are difficult concepts. Even as we were working through those last week, Uh, A lot of you were uh, motivated to think more deeply about them. I had a a long conversation with one of our church members this past week, just kind of exploring this idea of of faith in God, uh, having built that into men and women from the beginning. And he is well aware, this author is, that practical illustrations can help with difficult concepts, Like we find in those first three verses. And so this chapter is filled with the simple stories of men and women like us. People who were living in the world in which we live. You know, obviously not as technologically advanced. But the same men and women facing the same types of challenges confronted with the same types of obstacles. And if, if you remember Hebrews 6, 11 through 12, we read that the author desired that each of the Hebrews would be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so maybe when we were in chapter 6, you're going, so who are those people? Well, you know the book of Hebrews, many of you, and so you knew we were coming to the spot where he was going to say, and here they are. These are the examples that you are to imitate. And as we look at some of them in chapter 11, let's not forget what Hebrews 13 says. It says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. That's what it says. So, Let's look at these examples together. The first two are Abel, the second son of Adam and Eve, and and the second example is Enoch, a man who was born seven generations after Adam. And we read in in verse 4, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. Now, when you hear that Abel offered a better sacrifice, there's often been debate over, well, what made it a better sacrifice? And, and people think, well, I wonder if it was following the expectations right. Was it because he brought an offering from the herd and, and Cain brought an offering from the plants? and, and You know, that, that kind of debate goes around. But I think what we have here is that what made Abel's offering better was not the quality of the sacrifice, but the quality of Abel's faith. That's why Abel is listed in here in this chapter as an example of faith. Evidently, Cain, by virtue of God's rejection of his offering, and by his own response in the face of that re- uh, rejection, did not make his offering in faith. That has to be our natural conclusion. Abel's our example in Hebrews 11, the first one that we're given of faith. Cain's offering was not given in faith. He gave an offering because he had to. Not because he acknowledged, what did we learn in the earlier parts of chapter 11 and the earlier chapters of Hebrews? Not because he acknowledged God's holy character and standards and had a lasting and better hope. That's the substance of faith, right? That's what Abel must have had as he brought his offering before God. And what we learn from Abel's example is that it's possible for two people. You know, pick A and B. Could be on two people here in the church this morning or afternoon. Pick two people, and we learn from Abel that it's possible to perform the same good action. Both Abel and Cain sacrificed, and yet have only one person's action be approved by the Lord. And so a good question as we start is to say, what is the quality, not of your sacrifice, whether you arrive 15 minutes early to church on a Sunday afternoon, or whether you're reading your Bible every morning on the Bible app and, and actually making comments to, you know, you start to add all the brownie points, right, for, for doing things right is the quality of our sacrifice. What is the quality of your faith is a question to ask today. Do your offerings of worship express the assurance of things hoped for? Or are you giving of your time and your money and your resources because your peers or God or your family or your friends expect you to? Do you attend because you're being told to, to be here? Get in the car, buy X amount of time, we have a 10-minute warning and we're going to be leaving, right? Or do you do these things in faith? We also learn that offerings like Abel's that are given in faith receive a testimony from God. Now David was marveling earlier about the fact that God would speak of Ephraim, right, as his darling child and his dear son. Well, we have a similar thing happen here in chapter 11 when it says not just that Abel's sacrifice was good as if we were... Theologizing about what took place, and we were able to affirm what Abel did uh, in the face of what God done, as if God's a distant third party and we're just talking about what's right and what's wrong. No, it says that Abel received the testimony. Testimony of whom? Of God. God spoke out and said, Well done. And it says that it was the testimony that he was righteous. He received God's approval for his faith. And that's, that's what we want. We often say, when I see the Lord one day, I want him to be able to say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, I would love for him throughout the, my life in terms of my worship to say, this is righteous. The quality of your faith is what I expect. Your hope is anchored in the right place. In verse 5, we read, by faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. It was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Two times in Genesis 5, verses 22 and 24, Moses, author of Genesis, says that Enoch walked with God. Well, God only walks with those who please him. Do you want to please God? Do you want to be described like Enoch or like Abel? A faith that it loves your death by how long? Not just the next generation. Oh, grandma's faith. She had such a powerful faith. And then great-grandma... Who was great-grandma? Abel's faith is being talked about thousands of years after his death. Right? Right? enoch's faith we want that kind of faith that that would be our testimony if that's the case and we we read here that without faith it's impossible to please god we need to understand even more about faith why is this true why is it necessary that we have faith in order to please god well look at the last part of verse six this is a very interesting conclusion that you might miss For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is, I think you all would agree with that. Most people who, when they describe faith, pick that first half, must believe that he is. Yeah, I believe God exists. I believe that God is on his throne. I believe in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's half of the statement. The other half is here. Must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder, of those who diligently seek Him. Now last week, we, we went over that first part. We went over how faith acknowledges and clearly understands that God exists. Right? We didn't focus as much on that second part, which I think matches back in verse 1 when it says that faith is the substance or assurance of things hoped for. And you put in the blank hoped for the reward of God's promises. Okay? Verse 6 clarifies it for us. We hope that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. And it pleases God. I want you to put it all together. It pleases God that we hope for that and that we believe that he is the rewarder of that. Now, if you think about that for a moment, if all that you think about God is that he stands somewhere far off and he occasionally looks your way when you obey him, but then lays down the hammer when you don't. That's a lot of people's view of God, by the way. Then Hebrews 11 is implying that that faith is not only inaccurate, but it's weak. It's a weak faith. God rewards those who seek him. Do you believe that? When you were responding earlier to the liturgy and said yes, but Jesus was part of, but Jesus, Jesus is the answer of yes to every promise of God. And when you think about what God has promised. Aren't you just amazed of the things that the Bible says, an eternal inheritance, a new identity, and so much more? Well, the strength and passion of your faith are directly related to how you think God rewards you if you seek him. So I want you to, you know, as a challenge for today, I want to challenge you to meditate upon the rewards of God. If you continue on to verses 7 through 12, in those verses we encounter four examples of how faith focuses upon what God has revealed about the future. Verse 7 says that Noah, by faith, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, built an ark. Now, he's, Noah is one of the most recognized popular figures of the Bible, and yet even Christian bookstores often market him as a man in a cartoonish wooden boat with cute animals and a rainbow in the background. But that's certainly not the flood story of Genesis 6. In Genesis 6, we read how the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And as we think about that statement and we hear the force, every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. What we get is not this kind of um, ooey gooey soft focused picture of of Noah on a boat. We get a picture of a prevailing and universal corruption upon the earth, and only Noah, as verse eight says, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Only Noah. I don't know how many people populated the earth in this time, but only Noah. We're not even told why Noah received God's grace, just as we're not told why anyone receives the grace and gift of faith from God. But we can imply from the fact that only Noah was delivered that the situation was horrifically bad. So bad that verse 6 of that chapter says that God was grieved that he had created the earth. So no, the bright colors and the sweet animal faces of the cartoons don't even hint at the real situation in Noah's day. And in the midst of that worldwide evil, God intervened just as he does in our own lost condition. Noah received grace from God. And what was that grace? God revealed to Noah that destruction was imminent. And Noah believed him. And this is faith that we trust God. That what he says will happen will happen. And that includes his judgments as well as his promises. He is good enough. He is smart enough. He is holy enough, strong enough to do what he says he will do. And verse 7 says, Noah was warned by God about things not yet seen, namely that a flood was coming. Verse 8 says that Abraham was called by God to leave his homeland and says in verse 9 that that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were fellow heirs of a promise so God made a promise about a land that they would inherit someday which they'd never seen. Verse 11 says that Sarah regarded him faithful who had promised a child in the future and, and yet she was an old woman. And in every case... This individual, man or woman, is being informed and sustained by focusing on and living by God's revelation of what he planned to do in the future and how he included them in that plan and purpose. He does the same for you. In Philippians 4, he has said, I will supply all your needs according to my riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? In Psalm 23, he says, I will pursue you with goodness and mercy. Do you believe that? In John 15, 5, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews thirteen five says, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. So what can man do to me? How we need to often focus on that. How many of us are fearful about what man or woman are, is going to do to us? Isaiah 40 verse 31, wait on me and you will renew your strength and mount up like uh, with wings like eagles. You will run and not grow weary but and walk and not faint. Luke 12, I will give you words that you need to speak. How many of us need to believe that? How many of us shrink away from opportunities because we fear that we won't know what to speak when the time comes and yet Luke 12 says, I will give you the words that you need to speak. James 1.5, I will give you wisdom for every new challenge. In Isaiah 41, I will be with you and will strengthen you and will help you. Psalm 32, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And we have so, so many more things that God has revealed to us about the future and what he is doing and what he plans than any of these men and women ever had. And the difference between many of us and Noah is that Noah, when he learned about what God purposed to do, you know what he did? He was moved, it says, with godly fear. We've learned more about God, as I say, than then Noah, we know more about his plan and purpose and promise and his prior actions, and yet what Noah learned caused him to fear God, and that was not an abject fear or a fear for safety. It's not like he's, not, oh, I'm afraid of, of dying. That's not what godly fear means. It was a reverential, awestruck fear and acknowledgement that God could do what he was saying that he was doing to do, that he was going to bring this judgment because he is a holy God, because every intent of man's heart was evil all the time. And Noah said, I want to align myself with that God, then I want to align myself with the world. That's a godly fear. And that's the beginning, Proverbs says, of wisdom. And what happens when we possess that kind of godly fear? Listen to Isaiah 11, verse 3. Isaiah tells us that a man who has a reverent fear of God does not judge by the sight of his eyes or by the hearing of his ears. And that is such an appropriate passage to Hebrews. The fear of the Lord leads to wisdom, which allows us to discern and judge that which is not readily apparent to our eyes and to our ears. It's the belief in that future action and promise of God. And for Noah, that wisdom allowed him to listen to what God had said and to evaluate and say, that is right. God is holy based upon His perfect standards, I can see that my society is evil. I can see the justification that God has for bringing judgment. I believe He is going to do that and will destroy the people upon the earth. And God had said, if you believe that, if you desire to live, then you must build an ark. And not just any ark. You must with your simple axe and hammer of stone build... A wooden structure the size of a battleship. Any of you ever been out to uh, Ohio, Kentucky area and seen the scale model of the Ark? It is massive. And they built it with table saws and sawzalls and electric drills and metal hammers. Right? And cranes but not Noah. And, and God said, not only that, but I'm going to bring to, to this ark representatives of the various species upon the earth. They will stay with you for this extended period of time. And by the way, I don't want you to move the family down by the Persian Gulf or the Mediterranean Sea. I want you to build it right here in the middle of the plain where there's no large body of water. Okay. So it would be like that ark sitting in the middle of, of wood, wooded Ohio, and I don't think anybody there around that area is expecting there to be a rain large enough to float that boat away, and neither did the people in Noah's time. And it seemed like foolishness. In the town of Oban, Scotland, on a hill above the town is a rounded wall that looks like a copy of the Roman Colosseum. You look it up on Google when you get home. It's called McKaig's Folly. The, the builder, John Stuart McCaig, in 1897 started this project. He wanted, to, he wanted to build a replica of the Roman Colosseum over a town he was establishing. This was going to be his Colosseum. So he built it up on a hill. It was going to look down upon the, on the town, and he was going to put in all the arches. You know, the Colosseum is these rows of arches, right, that go around a very tall, very broad, uh, circular uh, building. And in all the arches, he's going to put statues of himself and his family members. So he spent thousands of pounds a fortune at that time in 1897. And he got as far as a circular portion of the wall. So if you stand just right in the town of Oban and look up, it looks like the Colosseum. But if you move 100 yards to the left or right, you realize... Wow, it's a little section of rounded wall. That's all he got to. And they call it today McCaig's Folly. And I think that's what they called Noah's Ark at the time. Noah's Folly. But Noah's belief in what God had revealed sustained his faith for decades. Building, proclaiming to his family, God is true, God is not a liar, God is able to do what he has promised to do. He will do what he has promised, and we need to be ready. Are you sure, Dad? 20 years later, are you sure? What did he say (laughs) here? Right? Noah lived, and the rest did not. And the next verses show that Abraham and Sarah also believed what God would say about the future. Verse 8 says that Abraham trusted God and left his homeland for an unknown place. Being willing to dwell in tents with his children and his grandchildren. Verse 11 says Sarah trusted God to conceive when she was barren and past the age of childbearing. It all sounds like foolishness. Even Sarah laughed at the thought that she would have a child. And see, what God was demanding of Noah and Abraham and Sarah was far greater than what he asks of us. You know, God required these three people to believe something that had never happened before. Something unprecedented and by all expectation, if not impossible, at least terribly unlikely. You say, well, really, is Abraham calling Abraham to a different land unprecedented unlikely and nearly impossible yes for the same reason that was nearly impossible for sarah to conceive they had no children at the time (laughs) there's no generations that are going to fill the land of whatever god's going to bring to them it was just as impossible and god asks you to believe things that actually have already happened he asks you to believe in the death and resurrection of jesus christ Things that weren't done in a corner, but things in the full light of history and recorded in the Bible, witnessed by hundreds. Noah, Abraham, and Sarah not only believed what God had revealed about the future, but like we discussed with regard to Enoch, they believed that God would reward them. God promised salvation from a worldwide flood. He promised Abraham and Sarah that a land filled with foreign people would one day actually be filled instead by their own grandchildren. Can you imagine that promise just kind of wrestling with that in your brain, being taken hundreds of miles from where you were? And you arrive and you see this pretty populated place. Archaeological excavations have shown that this Palestine was a populated land by various people groups. And you come in and you go, that's mine. God said, this is my land. <laughs> you know, set up the tent. Where? On the outside. <laughs> you know, these are powerful people. We're not able to go in yet, but this is, this is our land. You know, each morning when you got up and look out over it, when are we going to get it? I don't know. Probably not in my lifetime. See, God promises you something he's done countless times before. Possibly and probably in the lives of people you know, he's promising to forgive your sins. He is promising through faith in Christ to give you his spirit to lead you into the narrow and straight to give you joy to one day raise you from the dead and even like I said the resurrection isn't new because it already happened with Jesus who has gone before us in all things and so like Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham Sarah we are saved by believing things that are not seen and we please God by believing what he has revealed as to what he will do especially the promise of reward That's the inner life of faith. That's what you're constantly in the face of a different story and a different script from the world, constantly reminding yourself every day as you get up, I am a pilgrim in a foreign land. I am on a path to that place, like Abraham, where God has prepared a better place for me. Let's look at the four final verses, starting with verse 13. These all died in faith not having received the promises not having seen them far off they were assured of them though embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland and truly if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out they would have had opportunity to return but they desire a better that is a heavenly country the author says that each saw afar off, but it's amazing. For example, with Abraham, how afar off that actually was. As best we can tell, Abraham lived approximately two or three thousand years before Christ. We lived the same number of years after Christ, and Abraham, looking forward by faith, believed what God would say it, said would take place looking across those 20 to 30 centuries of time, what God would bring into creation through Christ, a city with eternal foundations. And because of that, that far-off hope, he was content to dwell in tents. And I, I just want to go back to what I was uh, alluding to earlier. You know, this isn't Abraham saying, it might not happen in my lifetime fully. You know, and 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 let me also remind you, he's not just looking to occupying the land right he is looking toward to the city that is made with heavenly hands the eternal city that definitely was not going to be in his children's or his grandchildren's lifetime he was thinking way afar off verses 17 to 22 mention that Isaac and Jacob Joseph had the same far-looking faith These men knew that God intended to make nations from their sons, and their final prayers and blessings are based upon that. Verse 22 says that Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. He knew, he believed what God had told his grandfather. Right? And what would all of these men say to you today? They would say, don't be focused on the present. Did you, read, did you see that clearly in verses 13 to 16? It says that those who desired these things and, and have confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, we, we know the fruit of that. We know that that's true. True. But they really believe that they are strangers and pilgrims on the earth because they declare plainly that they seek a homeland. In other words, they, they declare plainly, I'm not content with what the world offers. You ever talk to people like that? Is that a family member? Is that you? I'm not content with what the world is offering me, what it's trying to sell me. Because what it's trying to sell me is death. It's trying to sell... Me, me, as an idol. Me, exalted in my own image, right? It's not trying to sell me an eternal city not made by human hands. But the evidence that that's truly my heart is that I declare plainly that I'm not content with this and I keep seeking after that. And that's what these men would say to you Don't be content with this. Don't be focused on this, what the world offers in the present, that that the world says you should eat and drink and be merry. How many of you are just after living the next day and pursuing the next pleasure? For tomorrow you will die. That's the world's attitude, and that is death. Rather, they would say to you, sacrifice in the present based upon that future hope. And what a difference that attitude of faith makes because Hebrews 11 says that is what allows, for example, the believers that were commended for their early responses in chapter 10 to keep going even in the face of persecution. To keep going even when the decades pass and the rain hasn't fallen. To keep going even when you travel all that distance and you end up, Packing up a tent, you guys know what it's like to live in a tent, right? For a couple days, you know what it's like to live in tents for summer. Are you tired of living in tents for the summer? He's ready to be done, okay? Try decades. Living in tents in someone else's, well, no, this is going to be my land someday. And you can imagine what the neighbor said at the beginning. Which direction are you going? I don't know. where are you going? I don't know. You don't look like you're coming back. How far are you traveling? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. He had that forward-looking faith that said, God will lead me. That's what we need. In fact, that attitude is what we see in Moses in verses 24 to 25. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And so Moses, like Abraham, he's choosing to make a permanent break with what is familiar and comfortable, what the world offers him. A lot of people in Moses' situation would have been thrilled to have been born into a life of privilege. My family's wealthy. I have a privileged home. We have anything we want. We have lots of great toys, good food, we get to go on great vacations. I am so thankful for my life. And Moses says, "You know what? That's not what that's not what is important. He would rather identify with Israel and reject all of that. He didn't know what it would mean for his personal safety, just like you know, Abraham leaving, I don't know where I'm going." Moses says, I don't know what this means. All I know is I am not content with this. Whatever this leads to, God knows, and I trust him. And so verse 26 says that Moses unhesitatingly chose to identify with Israel. Why? Look at verse 26. He looked to the reward. Verse 27, he saw him who was invisible. I hope you're seeing it. Do you see this pattern over and over again in these heroes, these heroines? A belief in what God has said about the future. A confidence in the promised reward. Rahab, verse 31, she's looking forward in belief to the future victory of the Lord, of this nomadic people that have come Through the desert that have been there for 40 years, they're going to come and destroy her city that has walls. And she is going to be rewarded with being made a citizen of their people. If you take every example in this chapter of Hebrews, you will see that it describes a woman or a man who did something, often something that required great sacrifice or invited great ridicule and persecution, all on the basis of what God promised about the future. And these examples tell us something more, and that is that faith is not passive. It's not just that it goes through every day and says, okay, I got my eight to five job, got my three meals a day, I got my family to raise. My faith is there in what really amounts to kind of a passive faith that sits in the background. The examples that we have here are examples of forceful, dynamic, sometimes aggressive actions. We see the author saying, oh, failed to tell me of Gideon. We don't have time to talk about Gideon, just like he doesn't have time to talk about Gideon. But you know about Gideon. That's kind of what he the approach he takes. You know about Gideon. You know about Samson. You know about Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, the, those who were raised up as judges by God, who through faith subdued kingdoms. You see these actions? Subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the animal, the armies of the aliens, Women received their dead, raised to life again. This isn't poetry. This isn't fiction. This isn't fantasy. This is history. This is faith as it worked itself out in the lives of God's people. Even though so many of them did what? They ended up dying. And what is remarkable, given all that we've talked about, is this amazing conclusion, verses 13 to 16, that I think stand out more than anything else in this chapter. All of these individuals, it says, died in faith, not having received the promises. You read that and you go, wow, that's so unfair. All of these great examples died in faith, not having received the promises. It's true that some had kind of a partial fulfillment. Some, like Noah was rescued from the flood and Rahab did become a citizen of Israel. But it remains true that all of them were like Abraham, left looking forward to the eternal promise that will be fulfilled in Christ. And as the author says, they desired that better heavenly country. And look at the wonderful conclusion again in verse 16. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has. I want you to see that verse as having an emphasis on the word has. For he has prepared a city for them. They died of faith, not having received this promise, but they looked forward to a better country, a better city. And he has prepared the city for them. Wow. Now, armed with this, I think what we need to look now is at this first verse of chapter 12. For you, if you need to turn to the page, I only want you to look at it because having looked at chapter 11 as thoroughly as we did this afternoon, I think chapter 12, that first verse or two is going to jump out at you. Okay? Okay. 6,000 years, faithful men and women, not just those that are mentioned in chapter 11, but all in church history, many of who gave their lives. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Friends, I want you to imagine, You know, we've talked about Abel and Enoch and Abraham and Sarah and Noah and David and the judges and the prophets. We talked about all of those, and you could add in so many more in church history. And I want you to see them all kind of on the hillside, looking down as a cloud of witnesses. Can you, can you have that picture in your brain for a second? We are surrounded, it says, by a cloud of witnesses. Therefore, let us lay aside every weight And the sin which so easily ensnares us and trips us up and makes us content with what we have right now, what the world offers us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In other words, I want you to think like you're in this Olympic marathon and they're filling the stands or not the painted colored seats in Tokyo, Japan. I don't know if you've seen that in the opening ceremonies, but they've painted all the seats in the Colosseum, so it looks like there's people. There are to me, okay, just because of COVID over in Tokyo. So I want you instead to imagine you're running the marathon, you're coming in, you're trying to endure and persevere in this race of the Christian life, and they're in the stands coming to their feet, rising in this acclamation and... Shout of approval and cheering of encouragement is a cloud of witnesses, all that have gone before us, beginning with Abel. And it says, let us run with endurance the race set before us. Why? How? How can we do that? Because there's something that is wonderful and it's not All of those examples that we've just talked about that are up in the stands cheering us on. It's not that cloud of witnesses. What does the author say? Let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the faith that is set before us, looking unto... Where's... Who's at the finish line? Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross... He's already run that race. He is there. It's like he ran ahead of of us and then he turned around and that's the finish line. Despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so with this big picture in view, why can we not take life more seriously? Can't we? Can't we agree with the author, therefore, the strong conclusion, let us lay aside every weight? I mean, I, don't you want to just throw off the burden off of your back and start running more strongly? Because this cloud of witnesses, they did not even receive the promise, not one of them. They died looking forward to this time that we would be living in, that we would be a part of the church, running with perseverance, All of them challenge us. And the secret to perseverance in the end is to look to Jesus. Why? Remember this. Because I don't want you to ever go back to Hebrews 11 and just say by itself, I want to be like Abel or I want to be like Enoch. And the reason for that is all that those can do is set an example to encourage you. They are just encouragers. They're the cloud of witnesses. Jesus can empower you. So I don't want you to look to the examples beyond being an encouragement to you. I want you to ultimately have that, have them encourage you to look unto Jesus He is the author and the finisher of your faith. He began it, only He can complete it. He is the pioneer who's gone ahead of you. And so you are able to do all things, as Paul says, through Christ who strengthens you. And my prayer is that you will be a people of faith. That you'll examine God's word to see what He's revealed about what lies ahead. That you will not be content and that you're enduring a better possession will be that heavenly country, and we will know the evidence of that in your life because you say, I am not content. I am seeking a better country. And we will also see the evidence in your life because God is going to be inspiring you to be joyful in the midst of setbacks and challenges because we're going to see in you this kind of attitude that says whatever the world may offer what God has said is better. I'm willing to go wherever it leads me. And may you in your life one day be the example that encourages others. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word to us today. I thank you that you have inspired us in, in these chapters to be people of faith and then given us an example of what it means to look to the future of what you have revealed to seek the promises and the rewards that you have put forth in your word to align ourselves with your purpose, even if it means that we don't know where we'll be tomorrow, even if it means that we reject like Moses the comforts of today, and even if it means that we invite like Noah and many of the others, the ridicule, perhaps even death, like some of the prophets, like in Isaiah. But Lord, all of it is worth it, even if we should die without having received ultimately the, the promise, seeing face-to-face your return and, and being brought for your kingdom. We still, even now, are able to be joyfully anchored in the reality of being alive in Christ, of looking into him as the finisher of our faith, in knowing that he prepares a place for us, even now. So I pray these things, that you would strengthen us, that you would allow us to lay aside every weight and keep running this race with endurance. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.